You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Hello, everybody, and this is the Wine and Gold Talk podcast back again after a hiatus of some time. Chris, uh, I don't know how long the hiatus was. Do you have any idea? Too long, brother. Too long. Too long. Too long. Uh, I am Hayden Grove. I am a social media producer and reporter for Cleveland.com. I am joined by, and we will be doing this weekly on Mondays now as we have started this podcast over again. I am joined by Cavaliers beat reporter Chris Fedor. Chris, first of all, I want to ask you, I want to welcome you to the podcast, and it's great to be doing this with you. And also, uh, I want to ask you how your All-Star weekend was, how your All-Star break has been thus far. Uh, All-Star break was good up until Sunday night. Um, Aside from that, I got some downtime, was able to relax, maybe recharge the batteries for the final, what, 28 games of the regular season. Um, So got to see some friends, got to see some family. Got to hang out with my beautiful little nieces, uh, watched a little bit of the all-star festivities over the weekend, but tried to distance myself as much as possible from that. And then, obviously, Sunday, everything started to leak out in terms of uh, John Beeline's future. So, had to make a lot of calls, got a lot of calls, had a lot of people around the NBA talking about what he was going to do, where the Cavs were going to go. So, it looks like back to work, essentially, uh, a little bit earlier than anticipated. Yeah, I don't think anybody was necessarily looking out for the news that John Beeline uh, could potentially no longer be with the Cleveland Cavaliers as soon as at the end of the All-Star break. So, you know, there were reports uh, from multiple outlets, including our own, uh, from yourself, Chris, that said John Beeline could very well be um, on his way elsewhere. You know, we don't know exactly what's going to happen, but he's meeting with Dan Gilbert today. He's meeting with uh, the Cavaliers, and they're going to try to – figure out a direction. So what was your uh, takeaway from or how this news kind of came down? What did you hear last night, obviously on Sunday night after the all-star game? So usually the first question that everybody always asks is, Hey, are you surprised? Are you surprised by this news or anything along those lines? And the answer to that right away, Hayden is no, I don't, I don't think if you've been following the story of the Cavs throughout the course of this year, And you've been reading everything that I've been writing on Cleveland.com, listening to some of the things that I've been saying, reading other things that other people have been writing that cover the team as well. I don't think you could possibly be surprised that this could be happening as soon as uh, Wednesday, Um, because there's been a lot that has happened throughout the course of the season with the Cavs. There's been a lot that has happened since John Beeline was hired in May to be the coach of the Cavs. 
And if you go all the way back to just the coaching search in general, Hayden, um, if you looked at the candidates, there was one that stuck out that didn't make as much sense as the other ones. Like it was logical to go with John Beeline because he wanted a culture driver and he had always worked with young kids. That's what college was all about. And he had taken these non five star recruits and he had turned them into first round picks. And that was the kind of player development that the Cavs were attracted to. But all the guys that they were looking at, essentially, that were ready to move to the next phase of the interview process were young, up and coming relatable when it comes to the guys that are in the NBA that are going to be coached. And then you had John Beeline, who was 66 years old at the time of his hire. And the Cavs said all these things about his energy and he appears younger um, and he carries himself younger. But there was always there was always an unquantifiable aspect of going with John Beeline as a head coach. And it was always how is he going to transition from college to the pros? Because, yeah, he's really good at player development. Yeah, he was able to relate to young kids when he was a head coach at college and they had to listen to him. And he was the face of the institution. But there is nothing like the NBA. There's nothing that can prepare you for the NBA. So if we go all the way back there, it seemed from the very beginning that he was always fighting an uphill battle. And then you had these other things that came out throughout the course of the year about players wondering about his coaching methods and if film sessions were too long, and if practices were too long. And then you started to piece it all together and you started to ask yourself the question of, does he still have the locker room? In fact, I asked him that after a loss against the Golden State Warriors, if he felt like guys were still buying into him. So if you've followed everything since May, this shouldn't really be surprising. At the same time, it doesn't justify what's going on with the Cavs, and it doesn't excuse the way that they went about hiring John Beeline, and it doesn't make the organization, if they decide to move on from John Beeline, and it looks like that's the way it's going to go, and it's going to be something that he wants on his own, it doesn't make the organization look any better. In fact, it makes them look more dysfunctional. So, Chris, you broke down a lot of things there, and I think that this is one thing with this specific issue. There are so many different layers. There yeah. is a layer about the past. There's a layer about the present. There's a layer about the future. There's a layer about, you know, Dan Gilbert coming back and kind of being involved in this. So let's start from the very beginning in terms of John Beeline. Um, your thoughts on John's understanding of this, of what he was getting himself into. Did, did, it, it appears now that he didn't really understand, you know, the grind of an NBA season. He didn't understand, you know, how difficult was this was going to be. Um, how did how did this all come about and why did maybe the Cavaliers kind of think that he could handle this as to where now it's like, oh, well, it appears no matter what's going to happen, you know, it's, it's very apparent to us that maybe Beeline was not ready for this opportunity. Hayden, there's always a saying that I reference um, when having these kinds of conversations, and it's you don't know what you don't know. Right. So John Beeline goes in very this. true. And he thinks he knows what he's getting himself into, right? Just like if the Cavs pull off a trade. Okay, we'll bring up the Andre Drummond thing. So the Cavs trade for Andre Drummond. 
they think they know, right? Because Dan Gilbert's been watching the Detroit Pistons and he's had relationships with Andre Drummond and people within the Pistons organization that can tell him all about Andre Drummond, the person, and all about Andre Drummond, the player, and the kind of charity work he does. And the front office can do all of their research and they can stack all their papers together and they can go through the analytics and they can go through the salary cap ramifications and they can talk to as many people as possible to get a feel for Andre Drummond. But the truth is you don't know. You don't know until he's in your organization, with your coaches, around your players, in this kind of environment. And it's the same thing when it comes to John Beeline. Yeah, he can think in his mind, I'm good with this. I know what I'm getting myself into. It's a rebuild. I've done this before. I turned around West Virginia. I turned around Michigan. I turned around all these different programs. But you don't actually know until you're in it. You don't know what it's like until you're there on a daily basis and you have to communicate with these guys on a daily basis and try and find a way to get the most out of these guys on a daily basis. And you don't know the sting of losing in the NBA to the level that the Cavs were always going to lose because it's a rebuild. So you can sit there and you can say, yeah, I'm cool with it. I know what I signed up for. I'm in it for the long haul. This is why I'm here. And then all of a sudden it all happens and you're like, whoa, this is a little bit more difficult than I thought it was going to be. Or, whoa, this is not exactly what I thought I was getting myself into. So I guess you can call him a little bit naive from that standpoint. Um, He truly thought he was ready. He wanted this shot at the NBA. He sniffed around other opportunities with Atlanta, I think Orlando, Detroit in the past. But you don't know what you don't know. And John Beeline didn't know anything about the NBA until he actually got in the NBA. What do you think the hardest part for Beeline has been? We've seen all these reports in regards to, you know, the unhappiness of the players. The, yeah. you, you asked him the question in regards to, do you have this locker room? Um, you know, there have been some on-court kind of showings of frustration in regards to Kevin Love. There have been reports from play from, you know, unnamed sources about, you know, John Beeline's tactics and his practices. You know, what do you think has been the biggest issue? Do you think it's the fact that, you know, Beeline is used to being the face, used to being the guy, used to being making more money than his players? Uh, and now he just he, he's out of his league in that realm? Or is it an energy thing to where he wasn't ready to, for the 82 game grind? Uh, where, where do you think that this stems from most? So I think it's a lot, Hayden. I think it's a lot of the yeah, things. It's a multiple layered thing for sure. Yes. But I think if we're getting to the core of it, I think it's the fact that in college, it was John Beeline's program. He was the face of the institution. He could run it his way. And if guys weren't doing the things that he wanted them to be doing, then he could bench them. Right. He could bench them for two weeks or three weeks. And if they didn't like it, then they would just leave. And if they left, then John Beeline would just replace whoever it was with a guy just like the guy who was upset about playing time. So I I think there is an element of the NBA is a player's league. It's always going to be a player's league. And because of that, some of the things that John Beeline thought he was going to be able to do. Some of the things that he wanted to do from a culture and a detail and all of those different aspects, he's not able to do, right? So 
the Cavs get off to a horrible start in the third quarter. Is he going to bench Hall of Famer Kevin Love? Right? Is he going to bench Tristan Thompson? And if he does bench those guys, how do they respond to it? How does he handle that? How do they move forward from that? So there's just a lot of things like that, Hayden, that what do you do? In some ways, you have to give this power to the players. In some ways, you have to cater to these guys. And I think the other thing that he's had a really difficult problem with is the fact that Darius Garland is 19 years old and Kevin Porter Jr. is 19 years old and Kevin Love is 31 years old. So you have this mix of guys who, one, have different personalities, two, are at a different stage of their lives, and three, are at a different stage of their careers. So how he communicates with Kevin Love has to be different than how he communicates with Darius Garland. But at the same time, Darius Garland's a professional just like Kevin Love, so you can't communicate with Darius Garland by way of example in an unprofessional way and treat him like a kid, right? But at the same time, you have to treat Kevin Love different than Darius Garland and Kevin Porter Jr. and Colin Sexton because Kevin Love and Tristan Thompson, some of these guys have won championships. They've seen great basketball. They've been a part of great basketball. And they don't need the same kind of coaching that these other guys do. So how do you blend that all together? I don't think John Beeline ever found a working formula for that. Well, Chris, I mean, the, the layers just keep adding up because the, the more things you say, the more that I'm thinking of, oh, my goodness. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, we could we can talk about, you know, this layer. We can talk about the veterans. We can talk about the rookies. We can talk about the middle of the pack guys. We can talk about, you know, how Beeline was failing to adjust from one, you know, 19 year old to a 31 year old. Yeah. But then I think about this. How much of this at the end of the day? With with Dan Gilbert's unfortunate uh, stroke, and we're glad that he's doing better. Um, how much of this, from the roster to the fit with John Beeline, falls back on Kobe Altman? Because you know, it's, it seems to me, at least, that to put to put together a unit that would be cohesive, you know, that John Beeline could coach in in a more successful way you wouldn't have that kind of discrepancy between a Tristan Thompson a Kevin Love of you know big vets and the young kids so was this is this a situation where John Beeline was kind of set up for failure because of the roster that he inherited I think in some ways but I think at the same time Hayden it's the reality of the situation it's where the organization is in a rebuild they decided to commit to Kevin Love Tristan Thompson was always going to be on an expiring contract this year. John Beeline was always going to inherit a team that had a mix of young kids and veterans. John Beeline was always going to inherit a team that was not a finished product and that was completely mishmashed in terms of veterans, young guys, middle-of-the-road guys, and in terms of all-stars, young, up-and-coming players. That's the other thing. So... I mean, yeah, sure. I think it's absolutely fair to criticize Kobe Altman in the front office for this particular hire. Um, But I think at some point, we also all have to understand the reality of what John Beeline was walking into. And then if if you want to place blame on Kobe Altman and Dan Gilbert and Mike Ganzi and some of these other front office guys, I think you have to ask yourself, what should they have done different, right? Were they just going to force a trade of Tristan Thompson? Were they going to force a trade of Kevin Love? 
Were they going to um, make sure that there were no veterans on the team and they were all young guys? Then everybody would have been complaining because there was no leadership, right? There were no players that could show these young guys the way. I, I just think, to summarize this, Hayden, what yeah. the Cavs are trying to do is extremely difficult. Rebuilding in the NBA is really, really hard. There's a reason why it took the Orlando Magic like 10 years or something just to get into playoff contention. There's a reason why the Phoenix Suns have been rebuilding for, it seems like, the past decade. There's a reason why the Atlanta Hawks, who were the surprise team last year, the up-and-coming team, the next hot team, everybody wanted to buy stock in them, and they're one of the worst teams in the NBA again. So it's just really, really difficult. Um, it's hard to find answers, but if you want to put the blame on Kobe Altman and Dan Gilbert, I can absolutely understand why you want to do that, because they're the ones that thought outside the box. They're the ones um, that made this kind of reach for John Beeline when, look, a coaching search, there are so many unknowns to begin with, but when you go to the college route, you add more unknowns than even what you had in front of you to begin with. There are so many unknowns in general, as you said, you said in regards to, um, you know, you don't know what you don't know, you know, that, right. that's in regards to a lot of things. And I think there's a lot of blame to go around. I don't think that I would necessarily, if I was a fan of the Cavaliers and upset at this situation, I don't know if I could necessarily look around and say, okay, well, I blame this. I blame this one individual for everything. I think it's when you sure. look at it and you can, you can steer me right or right if I'm wrong. I think you can look at it and you can say, okay, John Beeline, you can blame him a little bit because he probably wasn't, he probably wasn't willing to, you know, change his ways enough to the point where the players would, you know, really fall under his, or really get to, you know, play hard and and be in alignment with him. I'm bringing the alignment word to the Cavaliers now. (laughs) I I think we're being fair though, Hayden, and and you're right. It is a lot about alignment. And I I would assume that Browns fans don't like hearing that. And and Cleveland fans don't like hearing that term um, because they've heard it enough when it comes to the Browns, the other dysfunctional franchise. Um, I think we're being fair. Like he adapted too late. By the time he adapted, by the time he realized some of the things he was doing needed to change, and by the time he was willing to listen to a lot of his assistants on film sessions and practices um, and giving guys days off and stuff like that, it was already too late, and some of the guys in the locker room were already rolling their eyes, and they were already upset. So yes. like, this yes. was a situation where, as a new coach, he was already fighting an uphill battle, and every single slip-up was going to be magnified because he needed to get guys on his side because like he didn't have the resume, right? Because he didn't have the NBA experience. So from the very beginning, this is a guy that you're going to look at sideways. So he had to get them from the very beginning. And by the time he started to change and adapt and do things different, it, it was probably too late. Yeah. So, but, but going back to my point, I don't mean to, to undercut your point, but my point, yes. So, okay. So John Beeline does things a little too late. Kobe Altman and Dan Gilbert build this roster. That's kind of a mishmash. Kevin Love and Tristan Thompson probably could have handled things better at times. I think they would admit that. No, I mean, the veterans on the team probably could have handled themselves in a better way, you know, for these young guys and the young guys probably could have 
handled themselves better. So I think when you look at it, at least for me, I think it, it's a three pronged approach in regards to the, how the blame goes. Yeah. And I don't know if you can, it, I don't know if there's a perfect candidate out there for a potential hire that could, you know, fix this. And that's what you said about making this rebuild or rebuilding in the NBA so hard. I mean, yeah. you know, you might have to go through two more coaches before you finally find the right fit with your roster. And who knows what that roster is going to look like in a couple of years when Tristan Thompson is gone. Kevin Love is gone. I mean, yeah. it's just, a, you're right. It seems to be a very, very difficult thing. And in saying that, um, the one thing that I did like that the front office did immediately after hiring John Beeline is they tried to surround him with competent um, NBA experienced assistants. J.B. Bickerstaff has head coaching experience. J.B. Bickerstaff had worked with Kevin Love when the two were young, up and coming in Minnesota together. So that relationship you felt like was going to be strong and it was going to be helpful. And Antonio Lang comes from the Utah Jazz, where it's all about culture. It's all about player development. It's all about um, a variety of different age groups um, and experience levels. So bringing guys like Antonio Lang and J.B. Bickerstaff specifically and then Dan Giroux, who was already here and had a relationship with Larry Nance Jr. And then one with Tristan Thompson um, and then one with some of these other guys that were already within the organization. Um, the thinking was that was going to help John Beeline make that transition um, and eventually, maybe possibly uh, once John Beeline put the culture in place. And he did the player development and he got this rebuild going in the right direction. A few years down the road, the thinking was probably, OK, J.B. Bickerstaff is the succession plan. Um, so J.B. Bickerstaff was somebody, Hayden, who interviewed for the head coaching job. He really, really impressed the front office to the point where I was having conversations with a few people wondering if J.B. was going to be the next head coach. Um, and then all of a sudden they go with John Beeline. Um, but that's the kind of level of respect I think JB has within the organization um, from the top down. So transitioning to him, you're still going to have some stability. You're still going to have some continuity. And I would think that he would get a long, long look if the Cavs decide to go this way, moving on from John Beeline, if John Beeline decides to move on, which looks like the most likely outcome and the most logical one at this point. Like, I don't know how you go back from that. Um, J.B. Bickerstaff being in place already could help the transition a little bit, similar to having Ty Lu in place to take over for David Blatt, because there are definite similarities here. So there are two ways that I want to go, you know, as we unfold this thing layer by layer, because, again, it is a layer filled uh, situation in regards to John Beeline. Uh, I have I have one question first, and that's, you know, you mentioned John Beeline. Is this or John Beeline, you know, making a decision for himself is this a, is this a case where john beeline is is kind of going to the Cavs and saying i can't you know i think it's best or is this a situation where the Cavs are going to him and saying john you know we think it's best if we for you and for us or is it a situation where they're both coming to each other like yeah we good uh all right yeah let's get let's go our separate ways I mean, <laughs> where is this coming from so hey and i think throughout the course of the season the writing has been on the wall and i think both sides see the writing but i think this is a john beeline decision Okay. I think this is him feeling like this is too much. He needs to go. This is a decision that he wants to make on his own. 
And I think all parties right now are trying to figure out the best exit strategy. I think that's very fair. So then when it comes to the Cavaliers, you mentioned J.B. Bickerstaff taking over. Yep. Um, you, you mentioned, you know, if he he was in all likelihood would be the next you know interim coach. He, you said a long look. So we can take it, take it in this direction now. J.B. Bickerstaff gets, so you said 28 games? 28 yeah, games left. Yeah. So is that a long enough look if the Cavaliers, you know, do want to give them a shot? Is that the long look that they're looking for? Or are they going to look for a, you know, season and a half or season and a quarter kind of look as they give him next year? That's a great question. Yeah. That's a great question. I think the thing that's so hard right now about the timing of all this, Hayden, is that so many within the organization aren't even in Cleveland right now. J.B. Bickerstaff went on vacation to the Caribbean. Yeah. That was his plan all along for All-Star. Kobe Altman's on the West Coast. He's in a completely different time zone. That was his plan all along, too. You know, other members of the front office are scattered throughout the country. Players are scattered throughout the country. Some are in Miami. Some are in the Caribbean. Some are in Los Angeles. So um, I think internally... Everybody just wanted to get to Wednesday. Wednesday is when everybody's supposed to reconvene. And I think everybody wanted to get through um, the all-star break, recharge, have an actual break because it is a long, grueling season, reconvene on Wednesday and make the best possible decision moving forward. And I think the fact that this leaked out, um, I think that has maybe sped up the process a little bit. I don't know that 28 games is a long enough look. In fairness, I think they've been looking at J.B. Bickerstaff on a daily basis and seeing how he handles the defensive side of the ball during shoot-arounds, right? Seeing how some of the players react to him um, both on and off the court. Admittedly, when you're the head coach, it's a lot different and how guys view you are different and how you have to handle things on a day-to-day basis are different. And you're going to be the one um, that shoulders a lot of the blame. You're going to be the quote unquote scapegoat when things get wrong. You're going to be targeted by players when they're unhappy. Um, so that's going to be different, but, but the interaction and stuff like that between JB Bickerstaff and a lot of these players and other members of the organization has at least gone on throughout the course of the year. So they have some kind of idea. It's not like plucking somebody from the Denver Nuggets or somebody from the Utah Jazz or a different organization and trying to figure out how that guy's going to mesh within your organization. So Chris, without, without giving too much away, because you know, you can't reveal your sources, you can't reveal, you know, some conversations that you have, but without giving too much away, how bad is what I mean, how bad were some of these relationships uh, between John Beeline and the players? I mean, how much disdain was there or was this more just John just not not feeling that he was getting the kind of buy in that he needed? I mean, was it not that bad or was it to the point where, well, yeah, some of these guys really just had enough and couldn't stand it? I don't think it was toxic to that point, Hayden. Yeah. Um, but but I think it, it was to a point of. Something was going to have to change in the offseason, either yeah. the roster or the head coach. Like there, there just wasn't a way, um, given everything that we had seen and everything that we knew, for John Beeline 
and the roster to stay the same coming into the 2020-2021 season. Yeah. Uh, no, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, again, you just you see on the court, you see uh, there was a there's a quote from Colin Sexton out there about you know him and Darius Garland saying we you know, we can't be doing this for 82 games. And, right. You know there were reports earlier in the year um, from you know anonymous players saying he's you know running this like a college program. It's just it, it's to the point where well okay you know maybe these guys weren't so upset and maybe it it just seemed that way and maybe John was more upset because he didn't have the power that he wanted. But at the end of the day, it looks like it could have been, and it still could be, a, a two-way street, and you know both sides deserve blame. But at the end of the day, you know one of these one of these assets is a roster full of young men, and the other one is a one-person, 66-year-old or 67-year-old man contract. Yes. And it's it's kind of easier to see which way you would rather go. Right. And I think here's the reality. Um. And and this is nothing against John Beeline or anything. It's just, it's life. Right. Yeah. He's 67 years old. Oh, yeah. And have how to. a 67 year old communicates with a 19 year old is a lot different than how a 30 something year old is going to communicate to that 19 year old or 20 year old or 21 year old. There's just a significant age gap. And I think a communication gap that was always going to exist. I, I think the Cavs felt like it was going to be better. And maybe John Beeline was going to be somewhat of an exception because he had found a way to get through to 19, 20, 21, 22 year old kids throughout his entire life in college. But in a way, those guys were forced to listen to him and they were forced to conform in order to play at Michigan or West Virginia or any other stop. This is different in the NBA. These guys aren't forced to listen to John Beeline. They don't have to conform. They feel like internally that the coach has to adjust to them that it's a player's league because it is a player's league. And the most successful coaches in the NBA, believe it or not, Aiden, aren't the ones who are at their best when it comes to schemes or X's and O's. It's about managing personalities. And personalities are different. Kevin Love's personality is different than Larry Nance's, who's as different than Kevin Porter Jr.'s, who's as different than Colin Sexton's, who's as different than Dante Exum's and Matthew Dellavedova's. That's just what being a head coach in the NBA has boiled down to recently. Um, so that's that's something that the Cavs thought John Beeline was going to be able to navigate. And, and through the first half of this season um, – you have seen that it's been harder for him than he expected and harder for him than the Cavs have expected, for sure. But there's just a reality that comes with a 67-year-old guy trying to talk to millennials, right? The language is different. It's completely different. Absolutely. And it, you know, it brings to mind Ty Lue and, you know, how the Cavaliers went about that whole transition. I mean, it seems like in a weird way, it's kind of a similar thing. Obviously, the teams are very different in yes. where their, their expectations are. But in regards to the locker room dynamic, it seems very similar to the David Blatt situation. Yes. Uh, and you, you were around for that, for the, that transition. I mean, I was just starting to get around to that. What, do you, what? How similar are these transitions? And is J.B. Bickerstaff the kind of Ty Lue type in this situation? Well, it comes down to this, Hayden. Like I said, there's no way that you can fully know what you're getting yourself into. If you're David Black coming to the NBA, or if you're John Beeline coming to the NBA for the first time, there's just no way that you can know what you're getting yourself into because 
there's nothing like the NBA. It's right. just completely different. I was talking to a number of different coaches on the staff of John Beeline, some of the film guys, some of the lower level assistants who also tried to make the leap from college to the pros and how different things were for them in the way that they operated and the learning curve that they had to have. And they weren't even head coaches, right? So there's just a significant learning curve that was always going to exist when you hire somebody like David Blatt or John Beeline that's coming to the NBA for the first time. And the benefit of J.B. Bickerstaff is he's not coming to the NBA for the first time. He's been a head coach in Houston. He's been a head coach in Memphis. And he was an assistant in the NBA before that. So most of his career has been spent in and around the NBA, building those connections, building those relationships, seeing it from a different lens, learning how to communicate with these guys effectively. And that doesn't mean that he's guaranteed to be successful. And that doesn't mean that if the Cavs decide to go this way and John Beeline's not here for their game on Friday night against the Washington Wizards, that everything with the organization is suddenly fixed and this relationship, this relationship that the Cavs have um, between players and coaches is just going to be so smooth for the rest of the year. There are no guarantees of that either. Um, but, but I think what you have here is a situation where because it's been out the way that it is, that John Beeline's wondering if this is something that he wants to continue. Like players already doubted whether he was the right guy and whether his methods were working. Right, right. now, all of a sudden they have a head coach who clearly thinks the same thing, wondering if this is right for him, if this is too much for him. Like, that that can't continue for the rest of the season. I don't know how you come back from that. No, I don't either. I mean, when you see all this stuff coming out about, well, you know, John Beeline is questioning. I mean, you know, if you're a team, what is your thought process going into the next game if he does come back? Yes. You know, what, what, I mean, why would you even consider playing if you're, if you're in that situation? Yeah. But I think with the Cavaliers, they, they, I guess my takeaway from a lot of this too is that, you know, it's just, it's just a quicker, a much quicker, albeit much quicker, but a quicker transition from Beeline to, to Bickerstaff. And I think, again, you mentioned it, that that's kind of the direction that they wanted to go. So with Bickerstaff, um, you know, we, we talked about whether or not 28 games is going to be enough time. But what is his relationship like? I mean, do guys have you you've talked to plenty of guys, you mm. know, what is his relationship like with the uh, with the players, with the assistant coaches? I mean, would he bring in anybody else for the rest of the season? I mean, what would you what would your takeaways be there? I would not think that he would bring in anybody for the rest of the season. I think just other people would just move up a chair um, if they're in the back row. Maybe one of them comes in the front row and maybe that's Lindsey Gottlieb. Um but how they view J.B. Bickerstaff, the assistant, is always going to be different than how they view J.B. Bickerstaff, the head coach. And how yes. they interact with him, the head coach and assistant, that's going to be different, too. Like, maybe how he is is going to be the same because he has to be true to himself. And these NBA guys, they've been around a long time. Players have been around a long time. They've been around a lot of different types of coaches they will sense if you're not being you. They will sense if you're not being true to yourself. Um, so I don't think how he acts is going to be different, but maybe how they respond to him is going to be different. I don't know. He has a great relationship with Kevin Porter Jr. At the beginning of the season, um, 
John Beeline wanted to take all these different coaches and assign them to certain guys so that they could oversee the development. That was something that John Beeline wanted to do, had a lot of success with in the past. J.B. Bickerstaff raised his hand, said, I want Kevin Porter Jr. I feel like I can relate to him. I feel like I can understand his story. I feel like I can get the most out of him. So Bickerstaff has worked with Kevin Porter Jr. on that close level. And I think you see some signs from Kevin Porter Jr. You like to see from him. Really talented guy. Kind of turning the corner here. On the rise. So you probably feel good about J.B. Bickerstaff's player development from that standpoint. Like I mentioned, he had a previous relationship with Kevin Love. When Kevin Love had the big outburst on the court um, that a lot of players that were around didn't feel like was a big deal. But admittedly, the Cavs handled the fine for Kevin Love the wrong type of way. Um, The timing of it was poor. The way that it was done was poor. Um, But one of the people that was around at the time that Kevin Love had that quote unquote outburst and wanted to talk more to Kobe Altman and others within the organization, J.B. Bickerstaff was one of those guys. So that relationship, you would think, is pretty strong. And there's some trust between the two sides there. Um, But again, I, I just think once a guy becomes head coach, it's hard to say for sure how that relationship is going to be compared to what it already is. So as we continue to, you know, it feels like we're we're like peeling an onion or something, just getting layer by layer by layer by layer. And I guess this is the last. Put the goggles on. Yeah, exactly. Put the goggles on. We don't need to be crying, right? As we cut this onion. Um, But this seems to be like the last of the beeline layer, because once John's gone, you know, he's not going to be a part of the Cavaliers anymore. And there's really not that much to talk about. There's a lot of revisionist history and we can talk about what, you know, what the Cavaliers did wrong and why it didn't work. But John, his future, you know, the Cleveland fans will, you know, likely wish him well on his way. And I don't think anybody has any ill will towards John Beeline. So the last layer of the John Beeline aspect of this is, first of all, do you see him? coaching again second of all where if anywhere would you would he go back to college i mean you have been around him for the last you know five six months where, where do you see this yeah not in the nba it's yeah. just too much right right it's, it's too much and i just don't think enough players show enough empathy like we talk all the time about how these young kids don't judge darius garland yet don't make a final determination on Kevin Porter Jr. yet. Right. Had to do the same thing with Colin Sexton last year, if you remember, right? Like, yes. he was right. the target of a lot of the guys in that locker room. He was the easy target. This year, coming into the year, John Beeline was always the easy target because he was the college coach coming to the NBA. He was the outsider coming to a place um, where he, quote-unquote, didn't belong or he had to, quote-unquote, earn his keep. Right. Um So we talk all the time about rookie growing pains. That happens with coaches, too. Yeah. And that's just not players. Yes, it's Darius Garland and Kevin Porter Jr. and Colin Sexton and all these young guys. But these coaches have these growing pains, too. If you talk about an assistant that's becoming a head coach for the first time, there are growing pains that that guy has to go through. So I just don't think there's enough empathy from players for that especially when a guy comes with the label of college coach and especially when a guy does things in a quote unquote college way. Um, So I just don't think the NBA is for him. 
Um, and I don't think he's enjoyed his time in the NBA. He talked to Terry Pluto a couple of weeks ago saying that he didn't regret the decision to come to the NBA. He didn't regret the decision to go to the Cavs. In some private conversations that I had with John Beeline, I was wondering if he was truthful in that comment to Terry Pluto, because there have been times, Hayden, this year where John Beeline has looked completely miserable and he's looked beaten down and he's looked exhausted. And there have been times where he has left the arena after him and I have talked in his office where he's just exasperated. He looks like he's in a bad place. So I, I don't think this league is for him. I don't think he can teach the way that he wants to teach. I don't think he can coach the way that he wants to coach. I don't think he can focus on the things that he wants to focus on in terms of attention to detail and fundamentals. I don't think he has the time when it comes to practice and some of these other things that he wants um, to implement all the things that he wants to implement. So if he does return to coaching, and I think that's an if, um, because he was fed up with college basketball and he was ready for the next stage of his life and his career, um, college is the place where he would go. And I think any college program would be happy and lucky to have him because what he did in college clearly worked. What he's been trying to do in the NBA albeit with a horrible roster with way too many guards and way too many bigs and way too many expiring contracts and, and, and maybe um, some lack of recognition of where this organization is, like this turned out to not be the place for John Beeline. So John Beeline moves on. Uh, assume, assume he moves on. You know, it yep. seems that that's the direction in which they're going to go. Yep. You just hit on this roster. I mean, apparently, as you said, J.B. Biggerstaff would likely take over. You know, the assistants would remain. But And I know there's a whole offseason to go. I know there's a whole, you know, NBA draft process and all that stuff. Um, how would things change in the immediate with J.B. Biggerstaff? Um, I think... Or would they at all? I mean, or would it just be more of the same and, and continue to develop these guys? Or, I mean... You know, I think there would be an initial honeymoon phase type thing, um, because that usually does happen when you make some kind of coaching change. Um, I, I think they would probably be more receptive to the things that JB tries to do. I think there would be more belief from players and maybe even from assistant coaches about the things that JB tries to do from a schematic X's and O's standpoint. Um and I think there would probably be more happiness from players um, just because they don't feel like they have to worry about these small things that they felt like they had to with John Beeline here. Um, but in terms of, like, are they all of a sudden going to finish uh, with 25 wins instead of the pace that they're on right now? No. I mean, they didn't acquire frigging Greg Popovich, you know, they, they, they right. didn't add LeBron James at the trade deadline. They added Andre Drummond instead, and they've got some really tough games coming up on the schedule. You know, immediately after Andre Drummond was added, somebody asked me, okay, how many more games do you think they're going to win for the rest of the season? And I said, probably eight, eight to 10, something like that. I, I'm not going to sit here and say that if they move on from John Beeline and J.B. Bickerstaff becomes the interim head coach and gets a longer look for permanent head coach, all of a sudden they're going to win 15. 
Like, that's just not realistic um, with what this roster has in order to go out and compete on a nightly basis. They can't defend. They're still really, really young. They're starting Jetty Osman at three, and he shouldn't be a starting wing in the NBA. Those things don't change. Just like Andre Drummond wasn't going to fix everything that was wrong with this team. Moving on from John Beeline is not going to fix everything that's wrong with this team and this organization either. That's the reality. So that's with this whole mean that they oh, shouldn't ahead. move on from him either, right? Because like right. there could be other ways that they feel the difference. There could be other happiness levels that increase because he's not around and maybe the organization saw something and then the players are like, oh, look, the organization saw what we saw sort of thing. And maybe there's a reason for us to have more faith in them. So there are different smaller things that can be better moving forward. But the end product, I don't know how much that changes. Well, and it's going to be hard to see how much that will change this year anyway. I mean, going into next year, you know, you could have a you'd have a pretty, you know, significantly different roster. You'll probably have another, sure. you, you could have an opportunity for a, t- you could have an opportunity for the number one overall pick. If right. things continue the way they're going to go, uh, you could have, you know, an opportunity to trade, you know, Trist, or Tristan Thompson will be around, you know, Kevin Love might not be around. So there's a different way to go there. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to ask about, you know, Beeline was brought in to develop Colin Sexton, was brought in to develop Darius Garland and some of these young guards. Um, obviously, Kevin Porter Jr. has taken a, has been such a surprise in a great way for the Cavaliers. He's kind of been their, you know, young, their real young star uh, this season. Yep. With, with with Sexton and with Sexton and uh, Garland, did John Beeline do like? Did he? Do you think with Colin especially because Darius, we don't really have anything to base it off of. But with Colin, do you think he stunted him? Do you think there was any any stunting there, or was it just another year in the NBA for Colin, him still trying to get this game? I think Colin Sexton's been really good. So for me, there's there's no way that I could say that John Beeline being here stunted his growth. Or putting Colin Sexton with Darius Garland in the same backcourt stunted Colin's growth. Colin's numbers have gone up across the board. Uh, the Cavs' numbers with Colin on the floor compared to off the floor are better than they were last year. Colin got to the rising stars, yes, because there was an injury replacement, but he deserved to be there to begin with. So I think if we're looking for individual success stories from this season, Hayden, and if we're looking for evidence of of John Beeline's player development, um, I I think Colin Sexton is one of those. Shooting percentage is up from last year. Um, His free throw percentage is up from last year. Over the last 13-plus games, he's been one of the best players in the entire Eastern Conference at any position, Um, and he's averaging more than four assists during that stretch. Um, And this is a guy who a lot of people felt like couldn't pass and couldn't see and didn't know how to make the right plays. And all of a sudden, he's starting to make um, levels of growth in those particular categories. So maybe you can say Darius Garland hasn't grown under John Beeline, but a lot of the other young guys have. And Larry Nance Jr. is in the middle of a stretch here um, where he has been as good at, at this point over the last, I don't know, two, three weeks. I mean, it's the best stretch of his entire career. So, again, that doesn't mean that John Beeline's a great coach in the right fit particularly. 
and all of a sudden he has all the answers in the NBA. But if we're talking from a player development standpoint, John Beeline and the staff that he picked to oversee that, I think they've done a pretty good job. So this is a layer I hadn't even really considered because I, I didn't, you know, it just seemed as though the answer was, I mean, is this, you know, you said this John Beeline might not be the right fit for the right. Is there an argument to be made for him staying around? Is there an argument to be made that that Colin Sexton, you know, you just you just made the argument for Colin Sexton, him, you know, all his numbers have gone up. He, he's been a better uh, passer over the last couple. He continues to improve. Um, you know, you mentioned Larry Nance Jr., is there an argument here with Kevin Porter Jr. obviously too? Is there an argument here that maybe John Beeline, if he could find the energy and he could find it in himself, that he could maybe help this team if he stuck around? No. Okay. <laughs> I don't think so. I mean, I think it's similar to David Blatt when he was here. Um, the things that happened while he was here didn't make him a horrible coach. It just meant that he wasn't the right fit for that group of players. Got it. You know what I mean? And I think it's similar when it comes to John Beeline um, because of what happened earlier this season and because of the questions um, that this group of players have about John that are hard um, to get to go away because of everything that happened in the first half of the season. No, that's that's absolutely fair. That's absolutely fair. But, I mean, just, but you know. again, like – not everything David Blatt did while he was here was dumb and bad. Right. Not everything that John Beeline did while he was here was dumb and bad. That's true. That's very true. And when you look and when, again, is, do you think, is it more about wins and loss? I mean, you know, the Cavaliers weren't expecting to be a playoff, you know, serious playoff contender this year, I don't believe. And um, is it more about the, the losses for John? I mean, is that what it really boils down to? The fact that just like that, that, he has never really lost like this and in this much in, in such a short span. I mean, John, you know, John has been from, he's been from West Virginia to Michigan. I mean, he mm -hmm. worked his way up and he's, he's won essentially everywhere he's been. Is it just too much losing at this age in his career to, to handle? I think that's part of it. I think that's certainly part of it. Um, I think going back to something we talked about at the beginning of this podcast, Hayden, it's also, it's not the 82 games, but it's the fact that hmm, – how can I put this? I'm trying the to find back -to -back, the right – The travel? No, no, no. It's not even that either. It's, it's the fact that the condensed schedule makes him feel like he needs to have things figured out quicker than maybe he did. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, like, I get when, you. When the Cavs screw up the fourth quarter of a game – against the Charlotte Hornets. He feels like going into the next game, he needs to have that figured out and correct it. And he needs to focus on that specifically. When, to be honest with you, like that's not his ultimate deadline. And that's not the ultimate deadline of this organization. But in college, it was a lot different. Right. They had so much time before the regular season started and there was time between games to try and work on things where he didn't have to do things in such a condensed fashion. Whereas in the NBA, I think he felt like he had to. So I think that was something that he had a really difficult time with. And yes, losing is hard. He even admitted it. 
he admitted it, I think it was after the loss against yeah, the Golden State, Golden State Warriors. Warriors. Like, yep. all of these losses were getting to him. Um, some, obviously, were harder than others. And I think, honestly, even he, at times, was having a hard time seeing the light at the end of the tunnel, just like players at times throughout the course of this year were having a hard time seeing the light at the end of the tunnel. Well, Chris, this is the, we're not just about, or we're not just done yet, but this is okay. the first kind of reiteration of the Wine and Gold podcast. We want to, um, you know, thank everybody who's listened to us thus far. It's just, I, I personally, I would like to have a little more, I know this has been a very kind of serious Yes, because it's a serious situation. You know, yes. the Cavaliers are moving on from another coach, you know, and I hope we can have and I think we will have more fun as, as time goes on. And maybe the basketball, you know, a season winds down and the offseason and all that. And, and I would like this and you would like this to be a kind of fun and interactive podcast. So with that said, um, you put out a tweet earlier and everybody can follow Chris at Chris Fedor, C-H-R-I-S-F-E-D-O-R on Twitter. Follow Chris, follow Chris. Um, he put out a tweet earlier, uh, said, Great news, Wine and Gold podcast and make a triumphant return. Me and at H underscore Grove, that's my Twitter name. You can follow me as well. Um, our first episode should drop today. Have questions you want answered, give them to us. So um, there are some questions here that I want to ask you, uh, and we appreciate, and I will shout you out if you are one of the senders. Uh, so this is from Terrell, at Terrell B 11 okay. Is Kobe on the chopping block? If not, why not? So here's the thing that I would say with like all of these kinds of questions, it feels like a cop out and it feels like um, maybe I'm deflecting here, but it is so hard to predict anything with this organization when Dan Gilbert makes a variety of decisions. When it comes to any big decision within the organization, Hayden, who's going to be drafted, who the Cavs are going to target in a trade, who the Cavs are going to target in a head coaching search. Um, whether they're going to fire a GM that all starts and ends with Dan and it always does. And it always will. That's the kind of owner he is. That's what he has shown himself to be since he took ownership of this organization. So could the Cavs move on from Kobe Altman? It's Dan Gilbert. Of course he could. Even after Kobe Altman got the contract extension before this year. Do I think it's the most likely outcome? No, I don't think it's the most likely outcome. But could it happen? With Dan Gilbert, anything is possible. You just never know. It, I mean, it's hard to have this conversation now, considering some of the stuff that Dan is dealing with in his personal yeah. life. Right. And you don't want to make light of that at all. But there is a common denominator in a lot of this turnover if if the the Cavs do decide to move on from John Beeline, if he decides to walk away and they go with J.B. Bickerstaff, that's going to be the sixth head coach in the last seven years. That is an unprecedented amount of turnover. And the Cavs have been good and bad during that stretch. They've had good GMs and bad GMs during that stretch. But there is a common denominator with the uncertainty that continues to happen in the organization and it continues to be Dan Gilbert. So it's hard to predict on a daily basis what he's going to do when it comes to this organization. Chris, you are absolutely incorrect when you say it is, uh, what, did, what was the word that you used that the, Oh, um, 
with in regards to the Cavaliers, uh, unprecedented. Unprecedented. You are absolutely incorrect because the Cleveland Browns have also oh, had coaches in seven years. So it is absolutely not unprecedented. <laughs> it is absolutely 100% precedented, and not even in a different city. Right here in Cleveland, there is a precedent for it. So incorrect by you, absolutely incorrect. There is a precedent for it. In fact, oh. the Cavaliers and the Browns have, will both end up with seven coaches in six years if John Beeline is to move on. Oh, my gosh. And as you know, um, for an organization like the Cavs, that's not the company that you want to keep. Mm, uh, no, definitely, you definitely. You'd love to definitely. have the Browns' popularity and the Browns' fan base and the support that they get despite how dysfunctional they've been. Correct. But in terms of competent, well-run organizations, like that's not exactly the company that you want to keep. But it's hard to say otherwise considering the amount of turnover that they've had. Right. I mean, I'm I'm just sitting here trying to think of other organizations around, you know, sports, not even basketball well, or football, that have had anywhere near six or seven coaches in, in nine, six or seven years. And right. And you know what, Hayden? It, this doesn't justify it at all. Like, you can make an argument that all of those, quote unquote, firings were the right move at the right time for the organization. But correct. then you have to go back and say, well, what were they thinking in the hiring process? Right. What was what was the, the blueprint that they followed in order to to arrive at the conclusion of David Blatt or um, Larry Drew or uh, I think in this case, John Beeline, I think David Blatt was a very, very, very different. That, I mean, Fair. that's Fair. that's a hard one. And I know what you're saying, because he he was supposed to coach Dion Waiters, Kyrie Irving and Andrew Wiggins. And then all of a sudden LeBron came back. Right. That is fair. That's um, I mean, yeah. That's the, the only time. one that, yeah, that's the, I mean, but you're right, though, in, in saying that it was a justified um, firing. Absolutely. I mean, I thought, you know, when it when it happened, it was shocking because, you know, they were just in the finals. But when you looked at the team, it, I mean, I think it was absolutely justified in why and how it was done and why it was done. And obviously it was ended up being justified because Tyloo brought home a title. Right. And if John Beeline decides that he wants to walk away because this isn't for him. Do you say, okay, that's the Cavs' fault? No. Um, I, I guess maybe in some cases you could say, yeah. well, the process that they used to hire him in the first place might have been a little bit flawed, and they've got to look into that a little bit deeper. But if he walks away, like, what are you supposed to do? Convince him to stay? Like, that's, yeah. that's not healthy for an organization. No. And again, I think you can go back to, yeah, I mean, the hiring practices, you know, what the... Right. the you know, the way in which they, they the person that they thought they were going to bring in. I mean, there's a lot of things there, but you're right. It, it's yeah. it was a difficult one. All right. We're going to go back to the questions. And uh, there are a couple here. And again, we appreciate you sending them in. And as we continue to do this on Mondays, we will be uh, asking you for more questions. So uh, please send them in to myself at H underscore Grove and Chris Fedor at Chris Fedor on Twitter. Um, this is going to be one we've talked a little bit about. Um, We've talked a little bit about, uh, you know, the, the assistant coaches. Alex Jensen is a name mentioned here. Would he be a top candidate if the Cavs reopen their coaching search this summer? So if the Cavs go down the road of a full-scale coaching search again, um, I would anticipate a lot of the guys who got a look this past offseason once again getting a look because they are considered the top up-and-coming assistants around the NBA. That's Jordy Fernandez. Um, that's Alex Jensen. Um, it helps them that they have 
ties to the organization, but that's Brett Brielmeyer. There's there's all those different guys that were lumped in that same category um, that the Cavs interviewed, liked, thought might have been um, ready to advance further down in the coaching interviews. Those guys, I would assume, would just come right back up. Makes a lot of sense. Uh, moving right along again, I get, I want to don't want to spend too too much time because there are a lot of questions. Again, we appreciate them, and there will be a time. There will be a time when we're not discussing a another uh, another Cavs coach and another Cavs potential coaching search and another Cavs coach leaving. Um, so we will get to your questions. Trust us. But in this scenario, we've been going for a while already, and we want to make sure you're still engaged. So uh, this is a question that comes in from Adam Tortelli. Uh, at, at at Italian Stallion, that's pretty good. It's a it's a good Twitter name, I think, right? Italian Stallion. That's it's he spells Italian like like Stallion, and then he spells Stallion like Italian. That's pretty yeah, good. I get it. Um, I like it. Yeah, we'll play like on it. Rocky too. I don't hate yeah. on that. No, can't hit on that. Uh, who is actually making the decisions in Independence? Everyone seems to be working in a silo, like their Berea counterparts. Only difference being this owner is medically restricted from interfering. Thoughts. I think, as I said, every big decision that happens within the organization starts and finishes with Dan Gilbert. Okay. Until I see otherwise, until I see any reason to think otherwise, I'm going to go based on history. Um, That doesn't mean that Kobe Altman doesn't have a say. Kobe Altman's relationship with John Beeline played a role in John being hired. Mike Ganzi, the assistant GM, having a relationship with Beeline played a role as well. Um, but nothing happens in this organization of significance without Dan Gilbert's final say. Moving right along, we got a, two more questions. Two more questions from the uh, Twitter folk because we appreciate them. We want we want to know what you guys want to know, and uh, we've been talking a lot about this John Beeline situation in which we peeled the layers of the onion, got a lot of layers out of the way. I don't know. If, I don't know if we could even. If, if it would take probably days to get through the whole onion because there are so many, there are so many different ways you could go with this. You could, yeah. you know, have the whole angle on, you know, the we could we could have talked about Kevin Love and Tristan Thompson a little more and how they handled things. Could have talked a little more about, you know, the as as we mentioned the hiring process. You know what ultimately why they're you know why this was flawed. We could talk about yeah. the whole college thing. There's so much more to you know dive into, but. I do um, want to say really quick, because you keep bringing up Kevin Love and Tristan Thompson. The reason that we keep bringing them up is because they had the on-court episodes of yes. the ones that went viral that a lot of people latched onto and a lot sure. of people wondered about and thought were a bad look. But John Beeline's inability to get through to the locker room, if we're boiling it down that way, that wasn't specific to just one age or one no. demographic. That Correct. was throughout. And I think Colin Sexton's recent comments kind of show that even him in his second year was wondering about the way that John was conducting practices um, and the amount of work that the Cavs had to put in on a daily basis um, that that obviously some players wondered about, including Colin Sexton. Right. And I'm certainly not singling out, you know, Kevin Love and Tristan Thompson saying that they were. I mean, I'm just saying that they they were. You're right. There were. They were the ones that had on-court issues in terms of, you know, boiling over a frustration. And in, in all, in many ways, they are the veteran leaders and the yes. veteran faces of the franchise. So um, they are the ones to be you know, discussed in that way. 
Um, what we have not talked a lot about on this podcast are, is the current roster and uh, Andre Drummond, who was just brought in. Um, so we do have a question, uh, two questions that are pretty much the same. These are from uh, James Turner and Mark Habit. Uh, with the addition of Drummond, does that perhaps lessen the need to trade Love? And then the other one is, you know, what is the likelihood that the Cavs keep both Kevin Love and Drummond after the season? So what do you what do you make of the Drummond Kevin Love pairing? How long could that last? And is is Drummond a guy that we've talked about? You know, we've we've heard you your thoughts on, um, or maybe we have. You know, your thoughts on Andre Drummond staying in Cleveland long term, signing a long term deal here. So when it comes to Kevin Love, um, the Cavs stance, as much as people in the NBA are surprised by it as much as some people who cover the NBA are surprised by it, the Cavs' stance on Kevin Love has remained the same. If you want him, it's going to take a lot to get him. And I'm talking combination of players and picks. Um, They're not going to do a salary dump. They're not going to attach a future pick to him just to get rid of him. Um, They want something of value in return for Kevin. And there was a belief internally that if the Cavs Um, did not find that kind of trade partner at the deadline that they were fully comfortable finishing out the season with Kevin and re-exploring his market this offseason at a time when free agents are not there to be had. So if there aren't high-impact free agents and teams don't have a lot of money to spend in free agency to begin with, like the biggest way that they're going to be able to make an offseason splash is some kind of trade for a quote-unquote disgruntled former All-Star. And Kevin Love falls into that particular category. He's certainly not the only one, but he falls into that category. And the Cavs feel like there are so many teams that are going to be um, hoarding cap space for the 2021 free agency class, which features Giannis, by the way, that other teams around the NBA may see an opening to try and strike and quote-unquote go for it, And that may be an avenue to trade Kevin. In saying that, they value him on the court and off the court, still think he's their best and most important player, and they are asking for that kind of return. Um, Are they going to get that kind of return? I don't know. I doubt it. I don't think the NBA values Kevin the way that the Cavs do. But until the Cavs change their value, I think Kevin's going to be here. In terms of Andre Drummond, I think he's going to opt into his contract and he's going to be around next year because, number one, the value of centers, that has diminished greatly. You saw that at the trade deadline. Um, There are some centers that teams will justify paying $30 million to. Andre Drummond and his skill set is not one of those centers. So because of that, I think he's going to recognize that and just opt into his contract and say, there's no way that anybody else is paying me $28.7 million. So it, again, that's for just next year. I mean, I think yeah. the question was more towards, I mean, is, is this, is, I guess we'll have to wait and see. It's, it's hard to, to, you know, navigate from more than a year out, but I mean. Right. Know, so they don't have to, and they don't have to make the decision yet, Hayden. That's the yeah. other thing. I think they want to see how it looks. Right. How does Andre Drummond impact Darius Garland, Colin Sexton, Kevin Porter Jr. and the young core? Is it something that we like? How does he fit alongside Kevin Love? Can we play Larry Nance Jr. alongside Andre Drummond? 
Like all of those things have to be figured out over the last 28 games and 28 games is not enough to determine that, but at least the Cavs are going to have a little bit more information before they make that what could be a $30 million investment long term. Yeah, it could definitely be a large investment for Andre Drummond. And uh, we do have one more question that we want to get to. And again, thank you for sending your questions in. Please continue to send them uh, as we continue to get this podcast revamped. We're going to, you know, we're going to be like the Cavaliers. We're going to revamp this thing, <laughs> rebuild it. It's been it's been in championship mode before, but we are going to we're going to take it from the bottom up and and try to do it our way. Um, hopefully, Wait, is LeBron coming back? And I don't I, know. I hope so. God, you know, don't wouldn't you hope? <laughs> wouldn't wouldn't that make you happy? Doesn't matter to me one way or the other, man. Well, hey, it would make our jobs a little. What I mean by that is it would make me happy because it would make our jobs a little more uh, yes. interesting. That's that's all I'm saying in that regard. That is true. Um, I, I was talking to somebody the other day because I didn't go to Detroit the day after the Kobe Bryant passing. Yeah. So before the Atlanta win which was the day before the All-Star break. Yeah. I, Hayden, I went three weeks without writing a game story about a win. There you go. I See? felt like I was writing the same thing over and over and over again. You probably that were. really, really difficult, let me tell you. And that, that's, again, that's what I mean. I would love, that's why, that's why I would love to have LeBron back here. <laughs> he would definitely bring some storylines. He'd bring some more. You know, some more drama and some uh, definitely things to watch out for. So uh, LeBron is definitely a magnet of that sort, if you will. Um, Somebody who's not a magnet and who this question is about, unfortunately, uh, this is from Ruif. John Ruif, R-U-Y-F. Ruif. Sorry, Ruif. My bad. Um, I will will pronounce that correctly next time, John. I apologize. Um, Can you talk about the impact of not having Dylan Windler and why his injury probably put the Cavs in a worse spot? So... Dylan Windler, obviously, I don't think he would certainly wouldn't change the Cavaliers win loss total that much. But I think you do lose a year of development and that does stink. Yes. You lose a year of development. You wonder moving forward, like which if the Cavs are focused on fit moving forward and they're they're trying to get all these these puzzle pieces aligned properly. There's that word again, aligned. Um, It's going to be a buzzword for our podcast. (laughs) <laughs> like, how do you even view Dylan Windler at this point? You can't possibly say, all right, we're not going to take um, the Israeli swingman because we invested a first round pick in Dylan Windler last year. Right. You can't go about it that way. At the right. same time, you also in the back pocket say, well, we really like Dylan. We used a first round pick on him for a reason. Can we view him in some lens as as part of the core of this group moving forward? Can we say, like, that's a guy who we thought was going to be starting in Jetty Osman's spot in December, January, February, something along those lines? So I, I, I don't know, Hayden. Like, I don't know how this organization looks at Dylan Windler. I don't know how they could. I know they liked him when they drafted him. I know they were worried about the Golden State Warriors taking him at number 28, and that's why they took him at 26. Um, I know they were internally wondering if he was going to start in Jetty Osman's spot in the second half of the season. Uh, but you're talking about somebody who lost his entire rookie year. And not only that, Hayden, but while everybody else was working on their craft, improving their game, Dylan Windler was rehabbing an injury. Yep. So he lost 
maybe two years potentially of getting yeah. back to the form that you would want him to be when he finally steps out on the court. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, no, absolutely. So that's really, really hard in terms of evaluation. Um, and I also think the Cavs would have been better with him instead of Jetty Osman, because there were numerous times this year, Hayden, where I was looking at Jetty saying, like, the things that Dylan brings, the shooting, the playmaking, um, the passing, the basketball IQ, the rebounding at his position— I was saying the Cavs need that more than what Jetty Osman can provide to this team. So I do think it was a setback from that standpoint. Again, like you said, though, it didn't make a huge difference in terms of the win-loss record. I don't think too many rookies are capable of doing that unless they're like Luka Doncic and Ja Morant. And we all know Dylan Windler is not one of those kinds of guys. Uh, No, I would definitely assume not. Uh, that's going to be a discussion for another podcast, by the way. What happened to Jetty Osman? I mean, you know, it looked like he was on a really, really, you know, good path with LeBron James, and LeBron was kind of mentoring him and and getting him in the right direction, and LeBron had nothing but praise for him, and it just kind of seems like he's fallen off a little bit, and maybe I'm wrong on that, and that's, but again, that's a discussion for another day. Maybe you can touch on that a little bit. No, I mean, I understand where you're coming from. Um, I think, um, I think in some ways, though, Hayden, this this year was important for this front office to see what Jetty could do and what he couldn't do. And and I think the conclusion that a lot of people have come to is, at the very least, uh, we probably don't know exactly who he is because there's still a lot of growth there that we need to but see. We know, but we know, but who we know what he's not, and he's not a starting caliber wing in this NBA. Not when we're talking about some of the wings that occupy that spot throughout the league. All right, everybody. Well, we want to thank you for joining us for the revamped, rebuild edition of the Wine and Gold podcast. Uh, we appreciate you joining us. And like I said before, uh, we want to make this a more, you know, a fun podcast. We will, Chris will be on the road the rest of the season with the Cavaliers. We'll touch on some of his travel issues. We'll touch on some of his, <laughs> his food spots. We'll, we'll have so you know, we'll, we'll have some more fun with this again. It's kind of, it's, it's good that we did this first podcast today because we wanted to uh, you know, touch on a very, you know, obviously crazy situation that John Beeline could potentially be leaving the team halfway through his first NBA season. Uh, it's definitely an important, you know, turning point in, in regards to this franchise. So we didn't want to uh, forget about that. And we had a ton, a ton, a ton uh, to pull back in regards to layers. Uh, but Chris, it's going to be a fun podcast. I know we have a good time chatting and uh, I yes. can't wait to do it with you, brother. I'm looking forward to it, man. It should be a lot of fun throughout the rest of the year. Appreciate all the Cavs fans hanging on. Um, not like this This is me, like that matters when it comes to an organizational standpoint or anything like that. But trust me, I know it's been hard on you guys, too, because I have to write about it on a daily basis and follow it. So all the fans that are sticking through it and trying to be faithful that this is going to turn around eventually. Uh, trust me, I do know how hard this is. There's no doubt about that. Well, you got it. Yeah, he's pulling a true. He's pulling a huge accident. Everybody, trust him. <laughs> trust him on this one. Don't you trust. ever put me in his category. Uh, come on, man. We got to start this podcast off right. I got to. I got to share. I got to shed some barbs to begin with. Come on. By the Dude, way, is this... Hugh Jackson still doing cameos? Is he oh still available? Oh my god. They are so bad. I. I cannot. <laughs> I cannot watch them. They're so cringeworthy. Chris, I, t- I swear to God, I look at them and I cannot, I cannot press the play button. 
Oh my god. It's so bad. It's worse than his coaching. Yeah. Well, oh, man, that's that's saying something, Hayden, because we're talking about maybe the worst coach in NFL history. Oh my goodness. It's just it, it's it's beyond cringeworthy to me. But yes. anyways, thanks for joining us, everybody. We will be back on Mondays. That'll be the day that we are gonna post this podcast. We'll do a weekly podcast on Monday. And uh, again, Chris will be joining us. You can follow him on Twitter at Chris Fedor. You can follow me on Twitter at H underscore Grove. And uh, once again, thanks for joining us. We'll see you next week.